So today um, we're look, continuing in our Metaphors of God series, and this is quite a, quite a huge subject. So uh, it might be quite a long sermon. So please get yourself comfortable. If I see people nodding off, I'll just fast forward. But essentially, what we're going to do is we're going to look at various passages in the scriptures uh, and kind of make our way through the Bible and, and look at this topic. And uh, so if you can have your, your Bible ready, that would be great. So there's no specific reading today. We'll be touching on various scriptures. So, uh, so far in the series, we've looked at God, our treasure, God, the good shepherd, God, the bread of life, God, the potter, and God, our shade. And uh, today we're looking at this quite challenging metaphor, God, the warrior. And it's challenging for some um, largely because of the negative connotations of the word warrior. Um, and it certainly uh, had negative connotations in the history of the church in the light of the Crusades. And uh, I, I found a, a Muslim scholar who, who said that the, in the course of the Crusades, the Crusaders committed some of the most pitiless and brutal crimes of the history of humanity, such as torture, rape, theft, the murdering of pregnant women, and cannibalism, which I didn't know. But... Um, that's the kind of reason, I think, why in the last few decades the, the whole military metaphors to do with God and the church have, have um, fallen out of favor, as it were. Um, yeah, so it's interesting, it's this whole uh, topic today. But I think uh, the fact remains that there are good warriors and there are evil warriors. And one of New Zealand's war heroes is Willie Apiata, who was awarded the Victoria Cross for saving the lives of his uh, comrades in Afghanistan. And if you were facing a serious um, physical harm or serious physical threat, uh, who would you want next to your side? You, you'd want a guy like Willie Apiata, wouldn't you? And I think it's the same in the spiritual, spiritual realm. When, when we face uh, challenges in the spiritual realm, uh, we need God at our side because God is the ultimate warrior. And so that's uh, what we're going to look at today. And it's a, a very important theological theme in the Bible. Uh, and it's, it's a consistent theme from the start of the Scriptures through to the end of the Scriptures, which we'll look at today. And, and it's still the, this concept of God, uh, the warrior, and, and our being our warrior for us is a massive comfort for us today. And as part of my research <clears throat> into this topic, I found a, a, a book written by a very well-respected biblical scholar called uh, Tremper Longman. And in it, he writes that the divine warrior theme is developed in the Bible in five stages. The first one, God fights on behalf of his people, Israel. And I think that's the one that we're mostly all uh, aware of. But then the second development uh, is God fights in judgment against his people, Israel. And I found that quite surprising, and I was taken aback when I, when I read it. But as I looked at the scriptures, uh, I could see he was quite right. And then the third stage is the, the proclamation that the, the, Old, Testament, the uh, Old Testament prophets uh, proclaimed, uh, foretold of the coming of a powerful divine warrior, which led to the fourth stage, which is Jesus' earthly ministry as the work of a conqueror. 
And finally, the return of Jesus, the divine warrior who will judge the spiritual and human enemies of God. So that's the, that's the kind of the ground that we're going to cover uh, today. And we're going to pull out three important themes. Firstly, if the Christian worldview is correct, then we shouldn't be surprised if we find life to be a battle most of the time. In fact, we should find it surprising if life isn't a battle in the light of, of the conflict that the scriptures say is happening uh, in the unseen realm. Uh, secondly, despite us living in the midst of this conflict, God is an invincible warrior and his ultimate victory is secure. So that's this, the second point. And thirdly, in the light of the previous point, and in the, in, the in the light of the previous two points, the real question is not, is God on my side, but am I on God's side? In other words, we need to place ourselves in God's story, not seek to, to yes, yes, God is interested in what's going on in our lives, but I think we need to be very aware of the, this greater spiritual conflict and place ourselves within that story instead of having a very uh, individualistic view of life uh, and, and in terms of God uh, being at our beck and call. <clears throat> so first of all, we're going to set the scene. And if you turn to page two in your Bibles, uh, we'll see that uh, even though the, the image of God as the warrior doesn't appear until the Exodus, the theme of conflict begin, begins very early in the Bible. So if you, if you look at Genesis 3, verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? So clearly something's wrong. We're only just into the story and clearly something's wrong. And the serpent is a, is a, a picture or a metaphor of one of God's <clears throat> creatures that is turned against him. <clears throat> We're not told uh, how the serpent got into the garden or why God allowed it to be there. But we can clearly see the serpent actively undermining God and trying to turn Adam and Eve away from him. So this conflict theme starts very early in, in the Bible. But another question I think that springs to mind is where was God when this discussion was happening, when, when, this, when the temptation was, was happening? We don't know. It, it, it's just God wasn't uh, there as it were. The story doesn't say that God was, was present there. So clearly God gives his creation space to choose whether or not to obey him, which is incredible really when you think about it. So you can't say that God is a helicopter parent, can you? And the essence of the conflict is really this fundamental question. You can see that in what the serpent says. And the, and the essence of the question, is God good and can I trust him? Is God good and can I trust him? That's the essence of the conflict. And I think the rest of the story of the Bible in a nutshell deals with how God goes about answering that, that question, that challenge to his, his character. So with that in mind, uh, turn to page 60, <clears throat> Exodus uh, 15. So the first specific instance of God being mentioned as a warrior is found in Exodus 15, where the Israelites sing a song of victory after God destroys Pharaoh and his army in the waters of the Red Sea. And this is what it says. Then Moses and the Israelites sang the song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. 
The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. So there's a very specific mention of the Lord as warrior. (coughs) So in this passage, we see God fighting, as it were, on behalf of his people Israel, delivering them from slavery in Egypt and judging Pharaoh for his oppression. Now, some might argue that this God acting in this way is not consistent with the New Testament's insistence that God is love. But I think said against that, the Bible also makes it clear that God is a judge. And the question we need to consider is is this. Can you be loving but not take action against injustice? Can you be loving but not take action against injustice? Would we be loving parents if we allowed our children to just do anything they wanted without disciplining them? without saying that's not right? Would the police be good if they stood by and did nothing while people stole and did whatever they liked? I think it's, it's, it's a bit tragic that we're not even going to bother reporting the break-in to a vehicle that happened last night because the police won't even get to it. They, they, they doesn't seem like they're interested in, in engaging with it. So to, that's, uh, that's injustice. When, when, our, when our authorities look like they're not concerned to stop things like stealing, uh, can we really really start to, you know, we really start to question, don't we? And we we see that in burglaries and and a lot of things that are happening today and and people stealing. So, can uh, can we be loving, can we be called loving if we're not going to, to stop injustice? And I think the answer to that question clearly is you can't be called loving without taking a stand against injustice. And so the story of the Exodus tells us that if someone refuses to do what God is wanting them to do, eventually God will take action and administer justice. God gave Pharaoh many requests and ten severe warnings and still he refused to do what God required of him. And finally God said, that's enough. And I think that's this, if we fast forward to Revelation, that's the, that's the end of the story. God will say enough, but until that time, uh, he allows uh, people freedom to choose. He, he allows a certain amount of injustice, um, but eventually he will say enough. But back to the Exodus story, some will argue that uh, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So how is that fair? But the word for hardened, if you look this up in the Hebrew, is actually the same word for strengthen. So it's actually, um, strictly speaking, it should say God strengthened Pharaoh's heart. Now that's quite a different take on it, isn't it? Now I can understand why they said hardened, because um, God, when, when you strengthen something, you're not saying something wasn't already there. You're saying you're taking what was already there and you're strengthening it. (coughs) So what God was doing was he was strengthening Pharaoh's disobedience. But the disobedience was already there. right? Pharaoh had already decided what he was going to do. He wasn't going to listen to God. He was Pharaoh, after all. Um, So God wasn't removing Pharaoh's ability to obey. He was strengthening Pharaoh's heart to do what Pharaoh already wanted to do. And that's quite a different take on that passage, isn't it? 
<clears throat> now, another very important aspect of the scriptures in the light of God fighting for Israel, and this is a, a very telling scripture if you turn to page 184, <clears throat> is that the focus is really is, is, is not so much on Israel itself, but it's God's purposes for Israel. And if you read Joshua 5, 13 to 14, we read, Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, <coughs> Are you for us or for our enemies? <coughs> Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Isn't that interesting? So the commander of the army of the Lord, clearly an angelic figure, says, I'm not on your side, but I've now come to help. So that, to me, clearly says where the focus is. The emphasis is not so much on Israel. It's for God's purposes for Israel. So there's a clear message for us here, I think. We need to guard against thinking that we ourselves and our plans should be the focus of attention when it should be God and his intentions that should be paramount for us. And any battle that God wins for us should be set against this far greater backdrop of God working out his plan for salvation in and through us. In other words, the question we need to ask ourselves is, is not, is God on our side, but are we on God's side? So we, and we're not making ourselves the, the center of attention. We're placing ourselves in God's story. Does, does that, is that clear? <clears throat> now, another really interesting <laughs> point is the relationship between God and the Israelite army. So since God fights for Israel, it does not have to worry about the number of its troops or its weapons technology. In fact, the Old Testament sees a large army and superior weapons as a liability. <laughs> That's not the conventional plan, is it? It's the Lord who gives victory in spite of overwhelming odds. So it's better to go into battle with a small, poorly equipped army than a large, well-trained one, according to the Old Testament. <clears throat> and we see this play out in many stories, such as the Exodus, David and Goliath, the classic um, story. Uh, Gideon, another classic story. Remember, Gideon starts with uh, 10,000 men and God whittles them down to 300. So um, this is another important reminder for us too when we feel outnumbered and outgunned. Where are we putting our trust? In our own horses and chariots, as it were? Or are we putting our faith in the power of God? Remember this. Remember this. If God fights for Israel, if God fights for us, a large army and superior weapons is a liability. Why? Because if, if we end up winning, we can say, oh, we did that. But if you have nothing, if, you, if you, there's no way you should have won, then God gets the glory. And often we, we see ourselves as, as having no, you know, we see ourselves as, Outnumbered and outgunned, don't we? But in these situations, that's an opportunity for the Lord to shine his power and his strength. So when Israel uh, trusted in their own strength, not only um, did this lead to God withdrawing his help, but consistent and persistent failure to trust in the Lord eventually uh, would lead God to turning against his people. And that's the second stage in the development of God as the divine warrior. <coughs> So according to the covenant God gave Moses, if the nation of Israel remained faithful to God and worshipped him alone, 
God would bless them abundantly. But if they fell into idolatry, remember idolatry is, is being captivated by um, another uh, God or a vision of flourishing. Um, today our gods can be money and power and things like that. If we get uh, drawn away from God through idolatry, God's judgment would fall on them. And unfortunately, they eventually fell into idolatry. And as a result, the presence of the Lord left the temple. And we can read about that in Ezekiel 10. And then the Babylonians turned up. And when King Zedekiah asked Jeremiah to inquire of the Lord, what shall we do? The message that came back, we can read about in page 668. Page 668. So Jeremiah 21, verses 3 to 5, page 668. And this is what it says. But Jeremiah answered them, Tell Zedekiah, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I'm about to turn against you the weapons of war that are in your hands, which you are using to fight the king of Babylon and the Babylonians who are outside the wall besieging you. And I will gather them inside the city. I myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and a mighty arm in furious anger and in great wrath. So, of course, the Babylonians conquered and the... Israel, the people of Israel, were taken into exile. So God was not Israel's warrior anymore. He had not only withdrawn his presence from the temple, uh, he had made war on his own people and punished them for their disobedience and idolatry, despite warning after warning after warning after warning. So here's this, here's this thing again of God, God giving people chance after chance after chance after chance after chance, and then finally said, that's it. Now remember... When we look around the world today and we see people disobeying God in so many different ways, and maybe we can even see ourselves disobeying God, eventually God will say, enough. So after this point, never again would God make war on Israel's flesh and blood enemies. And we can see that in the New Testament, of course, can't we? The Romans occupied Israel. Jesus came. He, it was, wasn't like he ignored the Romans, but he, he wasn't interested in kicking them out of Israel, right? He was operating on a, a far greater plan that we'll get to. <clears throat> so if the Exodus showed God's power on behalf of Israel, the exile, which is what happened to the people of Israel, displays God's power against them. If the Exodus is an expression of God's grace, the exile displays his judgment. In the Exodus event, we witness God as Israel's warrior in the exile He's Israel's enemy. It's quite sobering stuff, isn't it? But even in this terrible time, God still has this amazing ability to work out his purposes uh, in his through, through his people, in spite of them being in exile. And we read about that in the book of Esther. If you haven't read the book of Esther, I'd encourage you to do so. Fascinating that, that the name of God, the name of the Lord, is not mentioned once in the book of Esther. But God is presented as, as this person in the background orchestrating things. It's quite fascinating. So that's the book of Esther. <clears throat> and in the light of this aspect of God as divine warrior, I, I wonder if <clears throat> the church, especially in the West, <coughs> um, if we're not entering a time of exile, perhaps we are already in a time of exile as a nation of Israel were. Once upon a time, the, the leaders of the church were honoured and respected. In fact, um, when Dad first became a minister, 
he could go into a, a hardware shop and he'd get a discount for being a minister. <laughs> Not, yeah, it's like, it's like so weird now, doesn't it? It's like, really? But yeah, that's, apparently that's what happened. But not anymore. We have now moved uh, at best of a toleration of the church and at worst open hostility. But despite all of this, let's remember and rest in the fact that God is still the divine warrior who is working out his plan of salvation in the light of the rejection of our civilization. So, stage three, the proclamation of the coming of a powerful divine warrior. Uh, I've recently been introduced uh, through my studies at Kerry uh, to this, uh, uh, this class of scripture called apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic. Bit of a mouthful. Thank you, Ness. Uh, now, uh, it's a confusing word because um, apocalyptic in, in our common phrase is like the end of the world. It's the destruction of the world. <clears throat> but the, actually the, the Greek word actually means Revelation. Revelation, so apocalyptic means it com- comes from the word uh, reveal, so revelation. And that's how the, the last book of the Bible got its name. So if you, it's the apocalyptic of John, uh, the apostle. So, uh, so in this apocalyptic, these apocalyptic writings, uh, there's, a, there's a, a greater narrative, a greater story that is being told. Uh, despite that it's over and above what we can see. And, and we see uh, in these writings a greater cosmic battle that is being played out above and beyond uh, our physical realm. And uh, among the things that they revealed to the, the people of Israel living in exile was that this powerful divine warrior was coming to deliver God's people. So if you turn to page 766, 766, Daniel 7. <coughs> So we read in verse 13. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. That's when we first come across that phrase, son of man, glorious heavenly figure, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, power, a glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Fascinating, isn't it? We can clearly see Christ uh, in, portrayed in that scripture. So these writings were a massive source of, of hope and encouragement to the people of Israel living in exile. Yes, there was this massive kingdom, the Babylonians, who had all the power and might in that time. Where are the Babylonians now? <laughs> Where are the Babylonians now? They're gone. The word of the Lord is more enduring than empires. So yes, the present and near future were dire times for God's people, but God will have the last word. He will come and save his oppressed people from their distress. <coughs> so there are echoes here to encourage us too, I think. So in this hope of future deliverance, the Old Testament ends and the stage is set for the coming of the divine warrior. So if you turn to page 858, Mark Chapter 1, <coughs> Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So these are the words of Jesus. 
Now, <clears throat> before this, uh, Jesus was baptized in the River Jordan by John the Baptist, and it was highly significant. Uh, Jesus identifies himself as the true Israel. So we, what, what it's saying is in the, in the baptism of Christ, we see echoes of the, of the Exodus. So coming through the water, coming through the waters, uh, you know, analogy of the Red Sea, um, but through the waters of baptism, uh, and then preparing for the conquest <clears throat> of the true promised land. So uh, with any kingdom, of course, there is a king. The kingdom of God has come near. So Jesus is announcing himself as king, coming to conquer his enemies, not in a physical sense, not in a physical flesh and blood sense, <clears throat> but um, in a spiritual sense, uh, and to claim back what belongs to him. But he wasn't the conquering king that Israel was looking for, was he? Israel was wanting Rome to disappear and for them to be left alone again. But as, we, as I mentioned, Jesus wasn't uh, so much interested in the, in the Roman Empire and kicking them out of Israel. He was a conquering king on a cosmological scale. Again, this, this pointing to this far greater story that's going on. <coughs> so we've already covered in our studies in the Gospel of Mark how Jesus proved himself to be God by doing God-like things, and not least of the way in which he deals with demons. So if you turn to page 862... Mark chapter nine, uh, 5, verses 9 to 13. So when he encounters uh, demons, there's no battle as such. There's no battle. There's not a, oof, you know, oh, that hurt. I'll give you one, bang. No, there's, there's no battle. Jesus just speaks a word and the demons obey. Verse 9, then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again, uh, not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission. and He gave them permission. He didn't, he didn't even tell them to go. He gave them permission. Incredible. Um, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, around uh, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank and into the lake and were drowned. So it could hardly be described as a battle, could it? It's like the difference between someone with an AK-47 and the other guy with a limp piece of asparagus. This is like, that's the kind of difference we're talking about. And yet, the strange thing is, in a few short chapters, this divine warrior with all this power would be hung on a cross. The ultimate symbol of humiliation and being conquered and defeat in the eyes of the world. But the strange thing is, in this moment of apparent defeat, Jesus suffers the punishment for us all, uh, as his people, in fact, of the whole world, and in doing so, ransoms himself for us and defeats the powers of darkness. So if you turn to uh, 1016, page 1016. <coughs> Colossians 2, 13 to 15. When you were dead in your sins... And in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing them over, over them by the cross. So this pub, what's this public spectacle about? So after the Roman victories, 
Caesar would um, parade the vanquished foes of Rome through the streets of Rome and then have them executed at the end. <laughs> it was pretty gruesome. But that's, that's the, it was a victory parade, as it were. But the strange thing in these verses is that Jesus didn't defeat evil through overwhelming force of violence, but through Jesus submitting himself to violence. Right? He submitted himself to violence. And the suffering love of Jesus, the, the divine warrior on the cross, the victim, becomes the victor. So Trempa Longman says, just as a criminal justice system is exposed in its shortcomings when it executes an innocent person, so much more were the cosmic spiritual powers exposed and defeated when they crucified the sinless Lord of glory. Do you remember the question that we started with? Is God good? Can I trust him? And the cross answered that. Yes, God is good. He submitted himself to die uh, the death of a criminal, even though he was sinless. <coughs> God is good and trustworthy. And this remarkable paradox paves the way for the return of Jesus, the divine warrior who will judge the spiritual and human enemies of God. So if you can turn to page 1062, 1062, Revelation. Revelation 1, <clears throat> 12 to 18, page 1062. So again, this, this alt, alternate reality that John sees. Verse 12. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. <coughs> and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. There's that phrase again. There's a title. The son of man that we counted in Daniel. Dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell dead at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. What an incredible, glorious figure, isn't it? Incredible language. No wonder the apostle fell at his feet as they did. Now that sounds like our divine warrior, right? And yet, we don't see this figure again until chapter 19 when the rider on the white horse goes to war with the army of heaven. Instead, in chapter 5, if you go a couple of pages on to 1065, <coughs> Revelation 5, verse 5. <coughs> then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne encircled by four living creatures and the elders. The Lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. What a strange image. Where's the divine warrior gone? And we, the, the angel said, uh, the Lion of Judah. Where's the Lion of Judah? No, we see a lamb. You know, the lion, one of the most majestic and impressive animals you could ever hope to see, and in its place we see a lamb one of the most harmless and gentle-looking and least frightening creatures you could ever hope to see, looking as if it had been slain, 
looking as if it had been slain. What a what an incredible image. And remember, Jesus' crucified body still had the holes in his hands and the wound in his side. Remember he said to Thomas, put your hands here. Why do you think Jesus' resurrected body still has scars? Why do you think that should be the case? I think it would be an everlasting reminder for all of us in heaven of the suffering that Jesus went through because of his love for us. It would be an everlasting reminder that God is good and is trustworthy. Is, is God good and trustworthy? Yes, just look at his scars. Now, this is a highly symbolic picture, of course. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which is a bit freaky when you, when you try to imagine a lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. What does it mean? Seven is the number of perfection. What's horns a symbol of? Horns a symbol of strength, the horns of a bull. What, what, are, what do the eyes mean? The eyes are the symbol of perception, wisdom, knowledge. I can perceive all things. So the horns and eyes therefore symbolize that Jesus has absolute authority and dominion over all things and that he is all-knowing and fully aware of everything happening in the world. That Jesus is both the glorious Son of Man, the rider on the white horse, and the Lamb who was slain. So, it's a fair bit of ground we've covered this morning. And to be honest, we've really only just scratched the surface of this uh, huge topic. But we've seen that this metaphor of God as a warrior is, cons- is a consistent theme through the Scriptures, beginning with the Exodus and ending in Revelation. And through this study, we've seen that our world is the focal point of a far greater spiritual conflict, something much bigger going on. And therefore, if that's the case, we shouldn't be surprised if we find life to be a battle most of the time. Okay, so that was our first point. And secondly, in the, uh, despite us living in the midst of this cosmological conflict, God is an invincible warrior and his ultimate victory is secure. That's what Revelation tells us, the apocalyptic writings. God will have his way. He's working all things for a purpose, a goal, a telos, and he's, he's going to make that happen. So that's our second point. God is invincible and his ultimate victory is secure. Thirdly, in the light of the previous two points, uh, as, as I mentioned at the start, there's a real danger in our, in our Western society of making ourselves and our lives the focal point. But the real question is not, is God on our side, but are we on God's side? So what battles are you fighting in right now? What are, what are the conflicts that you're engaged in? What are you facing? Ronnie's touched on Colin, who's facing a brain tumour. Could God absolutely heal Colin and just go bang and the brain tumour's gone? Yes, he could. But so far he hasn't. Why? We don't know. But we place ourselves in his greater story. We trust in his wisdom and his understanding. Yes, we still keep praying. But we trust him. We, our eyes are looking to him. Not on, on our conflict. Not on the, not on the mountains, the, the giants that we face. We look to him. And we see Jesus in our place. He is he's our ultimate warrior. Right? We don't see ourselves having to fight these things. We see Jesus, the ultimate warrior, fighting for us. If you, if you turn to, um, don't do this, but if you, if you look at um, the story of King Jehoshaphat in Second Chronicles 20, he's facing this massive Amorite army. 
what does he do? He prays, Lord. That's a good start. You pray. You invite God to, to show you what it looks like from his perspective. Right? Remember the story of, of uh, Elisha. The, the, the prophet opened the, his, his eyes to his servant, and his servant could see the chariots of fire, the, the huge army of God surrounding him. Right? He, once he saw the spiritual realm, it put into context what he was facing in the physical. So pray. Invite God into your battle. Place yourself and your situation in the context of God's story. Ask God to work out his purpose through, in and through your battle. Your battle, God is not asking you to fight this battle just because it seems like a good idea, right? It's in the context of this far greater cosmological conflict that's happening. Place yourself in that far greater story. <clears throat> and have humility. The, the, uh, King Jehoshaphat said, I, don't, I, I have no idea what to do. I'm facing this vast army. I've got nothing. We're going to get slaughtered. I don't know what to do, Lord, but our eyes are upon you. That's what he says. Our eyes are on you. That's what we need to do. Take that, take that example. In, in your battles that you're fighting, trust in the Lord. Turn to him. Ask for his help. Always keep your eyes on the Lord. Don't keep your eyes on the wind and the waves. Keep your eyes on the Lord, our divine warrior. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this, this image of you being a warrior. And yet, Lord, in some respects, you're not the warrior our flesh would want. In our flesh, Lord, we want someone to immediately take away all of our problems and issues, <clears throat> make our lives easy and sweet and comfortable. And yet, Lord, in your life, in the lives of the stories of, of throughout Scripture, we don't see life as necessarily being easy and sweet, Lord. We see this, this conflict raging. And, but you, Lord, you are with your people in the fire. You are with your people in the water. And so thank you, Lord, that you are with us. And Father, we ask for your wisdom. We ask for your perception. We ask you to open our eyes to see what you are doing. May we join you in your battle. Lord, would you win uh, our battles and the battles in our lives in the context of this far greater story. And Lord, may we find ourselves in your, in your greater story. So Lord, may we keep our eyes on you today. And, and for the rest of our lives, Lord, may we look at you, the divine warrior, the invincible warrior, who is working all things for good for those who love him. In your precious name we pray. Amen.